Incoming transmission. The Klingonese word of the day is hang. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. Welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. If you thought Seven of Nine was a badass as captain of the Enterprise, wait till you see her stand-up comedy set. Author and New York City's premier Star Trek cosplay comedian, it's Danny Rydell! Danny! <laughs> Hi! Hi! Thank you so much, Todd. Oh, it's good to see you again. We first ran into each other uh at at uh barracuda lounge there with uh to proudly go it was it was a it was a fun gosh that was a fun night that <laughs> was such a fun night i just from the beginning to end that was such a fun night i got there and i knew i had the address right and it wasn't until a very sweet gentleman with a marvelous handlebar mustache came up behind me and just said you're here and pointed <laughs> out a black door on a stone wall on the street yep. with no signage whatsoever and i was like this is going to be good yeah <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right because uh that was that trip was uh our first trip to new york so we were just really kind of, I was like oh it's got to be around here somewhere and i thought there might be you know a logo on a window or a thing on a door you know something and it was yeah it was just kind of yeah, you know, something businesses put up when they want people to patronize them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was just kind of this this nondescript, no, not labeled door. And I, there was a small window and I peeked in there. I was like, I think this is it. She goes, are they open? So I grabbed the handle and it opened. I was like, I guess they are. <laughs> Let's walk yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's uh. so let me ask you, uh, let, let's let's go back. You... uh. You've been living, working in New York as a writer and comedian for how long now? About about a year and a half. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you mentioned before we started to roll that uh, you were a big fan of TNG growing up, as as am I. Actually, that... interestingly, it wasn't exactly growing up. Um, really? I... Um... I went through kind of a, so I'm 41 now. And when I was in my like early to mid thirties, I went through a difficult time, was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And one night I was just having a rough time and couldn't go to sleep. And I said to my husband, um, this was maybe like seven or eight years ago, yeah. like, baby, I need to binge watch something. And he was like, try this and put on TNG. And it, here I am in my mid thirties and my life changed forever. <laughs> wow. That's, that's quite a story. I've had, uh, I've had a couple of uh, veterans on who have admitted that Star Trek is their safe place. Like it's something. Oh yeah. It, the very hopeful. I mean, it is sci-fi and they're, you know, they're getting into, you know, sticky situations every week, but like 
the overall tone is that it's very hopeful and that we as a people are able to do very complicated uh theoretical physics in our head at the drop of a hat like <laughs> yeah so let me go back and say so it sounds it so it sounds like Star Trek came after and maybe comedy was there before. Were you a writer before you got into comedy? Like, what's the timeline here? So I was an author. Um, I have one novel published. Uh, it's I, I think it's good. Um, you know, it was a classic story. Got got great reviews. Didn't make me any money. But um, I have one novel published. And I um, like I mentioned, I was I went went through kind of a rough time. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I had been sober for a while, and that's when I wrote my book. And then I relapsed, and then um, and then I you know was continuing to go through a tough time and got into Star Trek. And some of the first jokes that I wrote were Star Trek jokes. Yeah, I told them to my husband, and he laughed, and he goes. This was probably five years ago, like, uh, I don't know, I guess a little more than four years ago, because this was like a couple months before I really started doing stand up comedy. Mm -hmm. And um, my husband says to me, like, those are funny, but no one's going to get them. If you ever wanted to be a comedian, like you'd have to tell jokes about things other than Star Trek, right. unless performed those jokes at a star trek convention or something and we both were ha 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 wouldn't that be cool if that was a thing flash forward uh, however many years and i do stand up comedy at star trek conventions That's but awesome. uh, back then you know I, i'm i'm getting into uh, writing jokes just to kind of deal with things yeah. and uh kind of around the same time i quit drinking again and that's when I said, I, I need, I need a creative outlet. I used to act just as a hobby. I miss being on stage. Um, you know, theater opportunities are very limited if it's not your career. And uh, this was just the perfect art form for me. So I basically did something totally crazy in midlife crisis. -y and I quit drinking cold turkey and picked up stand-up comedy and had no idea that it would go from an alternative to getting drunk every night to a, a career. Um, but wow. uh, I ended up um, uh, getting started in Philadelphia and over the pandemic doing a lot of Zoom comedy. And Whoa. it was over that period of time that I, I did a couple of virtual Star Trek conventions. And wow. the following year, um, those both of those those conventions invited me to come do it in person um and since then i've just been doing I don't, all all the cons <laughs> on the east coast anyway wow. um and it's it's just it's been so cool because not that long ago it was this joke oh haha you could only tell that joke at a star trek convention um but one thing you know moving from philly to new york is new york just has so so many more opportunities to get on stage in one but uh it, it, more opportunities to get into your niche like uh, like the viewing parties at barracuda uh that audience that audience got the deepest cut star trek jokes yeah. that i have ever written i mean I, I won't tell it right now because it's incredibly dirty but there's there's one joke where i, I reference the episode relics Yes. I don't know if you remember it. Oh, yes. 
it's a pretty deep cut joke. <laughs> and, and I had there there was a there were two gentlemen, older couple in the front row who repeated the who said the punchline with me because they <laughs> remembered the episode so well. And that's just uh, I, I love that I don't have to travel to a convention all the time. Yeah, no, that's great. I have I have one Star Trek joke and it's not so much a Star Trek joke as it is me doing my impression of Benjamin Sisko ordering food at a drive through. Oh, and I got to hear it. It's 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 not good. Let me just go ahead and <laughs> this is like it does. It does. I've done it. It has never worked, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you in the after show. I'll give it to you in the after show. Okay. Um, so if you want to hear Todd's, uh, if you want to hear Todd's Benjamin Cisco, you got to support us on Patreon. <laughs> um, anyways. Yeah. So let me, and then I promise we will get into Star Trek stuff, but when I get, when I have time to talk with comedians, I like to find out the formula uh, or their, their personal, their personal formula. What was your, did you have a particular structure that you liked as presented by a famous comedian? I don't want to ask like, well, who are your comedic inspirations? But like everybody kind of finds like, I like their joke writing style. I think that lends to my skill set or something along those lines. Did you have any particular style that you liked? So I, as far as watching comedy, I really, really enjoy storytelling comedy. So one of my favorite comedians to watch is Jim Jeffries. Um, he's a good he's one. Brilliant, just yeah. brilliant writer, brilliant storyteller, manages to keep you in a story even when he goes out of the story and goes into bits and then he comes back to the story and you're like, oh yeah, we're being told a story. Right. Um, and I, I think he influenced me in just, you know, me seeing how entertaining it is when someone uh, lets their natural anger come out in their voice, doesn't try to be an angry comedian, but, but, but leans into it. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and same thing with, um, so Carol Montgomery, um, who's known for her specials on Showtime, funny women of a certain age is, mm. has been a mentor and inspiration to me. Um, and she's in the same, she's, she's, does some storytelling, but definitely just kind of leans into the emotion and no censorship. I, I'm I'll, I'm a I'm a dirty comic. I like 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 sometimes I'll get off stage and be like, "Damn, I think I just made Lenny Bruce look like Mister Rogers." But <laughs> uh, so those those are the two that I, that I would. I I've always found um I I really enjoy a good storyteller as well. Uh, you know. Again, growing up, this was years and years ago. Um, one of the first comedy at comedy albums I had was a Bill Cosby album, and uh, I was impressed. You know, later looking at the album, there's only two tracks. Like he only does, he only tells two stories, but it fills a set. Like he he goes and 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 again, it's not like oh, there's lulls. No, there's no lulls. Like it's consistently funny throughout. Um, here more recently looking at, um, folks like, uh, you know, off the top of my head, uh, Mike Birbiglia, great storyteller. His style is very more leans more towards theatrical, like one man show. I mean, I know it's a one man show, but like 
presentation in yeah. at the yeah you know what i mean as opposed yeah. to guys like jim jeffries or even um burt kreischer who they are the guys you could hear them telling that story in a bar of like this is the guy at the party yeah. this is the like you'll never believe what happened to me buckle up here we go i'm gonna take you on this ride like versus um, someone who has a fourth wall exactly yeah and um my wife my, my wife who does not like comedy <laughs> really she's made that very apparent to me she's, she's oh no did she did when, wait now when, i have to ask did she like when, my comments <laughs> oh yes yes she does like you uh she's just not a <laughs> she she's told i was like so you know i think she's very empathic so when I finally was just like, what is it? What, you know, because I tried for the longest time. I was like, well, maybe you'll like this comic or maybe you'll like this one or this one or this one. She's just like, I'm. it's just not for me. I was like, why? Can you can you articulate why? I was like, and she said, um, she said, I just want to give them all hugs. I, I, she goes, I see through. Oh. I see through what they're saying and what they're doing. And I just want to give them a hug. I was just like, oh, you understand comedy better than you let on. For real, I need a hug. We all do. I mean, seriously, it's 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 a it's it seems like a cliche that you know stand up comedians you know but have had traumatic childhoods or or have X Y Z or A B C. But yeah, speaking for myself and most comedians I know, it's hell inside our heads. Yeah, yeah. What's well, you know. I've said, and, you know, I don't know if this is, you know, I, I don't know if I've absorbed this from someone else, but I've always said, look, it takes a special kind of damage to get on stage, to repeatedly get on stage and seek approval from strangers in a bar. Like that's, there's something, <laughs> there's something rotten in Denmark, like, like <laughs> something's not quite yeah. right up there. And again, to even when it doesn't go well, be like, see you next week. <laughs> I'll be back. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Yep. Oh, my, uh, oh, yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, finding uh, Star Trek as your as your safe place, as your way to sort of ground yourself, it sounds like of like, you know, to recenter, to refocus using. Yeah. Using the narratives to kind of and again, to re-inspire hope like Star Trek's always been about that sort of thing. What was it like to then jump from, you know, the TNG era? Because I assume once you finished. TNG, you moved on to Deep Space Nine, Voyager, maybe even Enterprise? Uh, I think I went um, TNG, then went back and watched the original series. Oh. Um, and then I went Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, Voyager. Uh, did That's I miss anything? I don't, and then no, obviously that, everything since. That is so great because it's kind of, you know, I've seen where people take different tracks of like, oh, you know, my family was, was big on Deep Space Nine. So Deep Space Nine was the first thing I watched or the most common ones are TNG or, you know, the original series. But it's it's wild to find like, OK, I found TNG first and then I went backwards and then I went forwards and then I went backwards again. Like to to mix up the timeline like that is a lot of it's really fascinating. Uh, it offers yeah, a unique even, perspective. When my husband said, watch Star Trek The Next Generation, mm -hmm. I was like, well, shouldn't I watch the original Star Trek first? And he was like, no, no, you'll like this one better. Yeah. You'll like this one better. <laughs> and 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 my that totally went against my natural inclination, which is to watch things in not timeline order, but chronological order. Right. And at the time, I didn't even know Enterprise existed 
to give me the option of watching it in timeline order. Right, right. Um, but I'm 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 glad I did it that way. And it, I kind of I think I I went I went I think I went kind of out of order just based on like I had a friend who's like oh, I'm watching Enterprise right now. Let's watch it together. Um, cool. But. Uh, my husband definitely knows me very well and was right to start me on TNG because I I needed Jean-Luc Picard in my life and uh, I yeah. needed Commander Riker in my life, although I had him all along in the form of my husband and didn't realize it. <laughs> he but, sounds like a great guy. <laughs> from I mean, from everything I heard from you on stage, he sounds like a great guy. <laughs> He even looks like Jonathan Frakes. It's great. Um, Here's the thing. My dad kind of looks like Jean-Luc Picard. And it's weird. Like I, I, I gravitated towards Jean-Luc because it was, he was the calm, uh, reassuring, but firm voice that I needed as a young man. And here he was in this, in this British actor who oddly looks a little bit like my dad. So like, <laughs> That must be so heartwarming. Then, yeah, when you see yeah. That, just... <laughs> <laughs> so, so going through, so you know, having this unique uh, experience of Trek, uh, basically binge watching a lot of it sounds like right off the bat, which is always kind of fun. Oh yeah. Do you, do you remember getting into New Trek and Discovery, and now the you know the shows that are uh, that are out there streaming? Oh yeah. And, and the way that, the way that everything links together is, it is so perfect. And I, I particularly love Strange New Worlds. I mean, so I, I, I really, I love, like say Lower Decks for, I love Discovery for what it takes on um, as far as like, you know, social issues and, and, and I love that it after, after its initial couple seasons, took on its a life of its own by going way into the future and had these very classic Trek plot lines, but outside of the timeline we know, which I guess gives the writers a lot more freedom. But right. I love how Strange New Worlds, they nestled that in there so perfectly, that little window of time yeah. um, between the beginning of the show or, or, you know, basically between Pike's last appearance on Discovery. Uh, and I'm I'm hoping they'll go all the way up until... I, I hate to say it, but I, I, I'd love to see Pike's accident. Um, yeah, yeah. Just just to have the whole story be one, be connected. But the way they did, say, like the season finale of Strange New Worlds, mm-hmm. that was some of the most brilliant television writing I've ever seen. Yep. Just yeah. taking Balance of Terror and the Menagerie, like two of the most beloved episodes of the original Star Trek and deepening their meaning beyond belief Mm -hmm. um i i must have i i watched that and then i went back and watched balance of terror in the menagerie and then i watched it again and then i did that again and every time i would just cry like when when the the the, the tearjerker is when spock comes in and says something to pike like i have a feeling you saved me from something horrible yeah when you hear that line on the heels of seeing the menagerie. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Heartbreaking. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the line. I mean, I, I don't want to stray too far from New Trek, but I will tell you the line that consistently gets me is right after it's in TNG. Um, it's right after the best of both worlds, the episode family, 
where Picard goes back to the chateau and interacts with his brother and breaks down, telling him, you know, everything that just happened. And he and his I brother should have been able to stop them. In the yeah, should have been able to stop them. The whole thing. You see, we we see this unflappable captain break down. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's it's at the end where he finally has the catharsis with his brother and his brother comes to him with the bottle and hands it to him. It says, I am I'm not gonna cry starting to talk about this, Danny. <laughs> but he but he says, uh, try not to drink it all. Try not to drink it alone. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. It's I I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> yep. But yes. it gets it gets me every single time because you know, I I usually jump from that episode to uh generations where ah. yeah and and seeing that now now the family's gone and and he's 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 seeking the he's seeking the life where he didn't drink it alone uh but he he stayed in starfleet and the whole thing and it's just and to watch him sort of be able to accept it for a second and you see the smile on his face as he's surrounded by the kids and the Christmas tree and the house and the snow. And it's just, it, this is it. This is, this is what I, this is what I really wanted. And then him going, it's, it's, it's not right. It's not real. I have to go back. Like making that decision. Yes. Was, oh, such I a know. hard. Oh, I know. anyways. That- uh, that episode when um, so my, my dad, I've been trying to get my dad into TNG for the longest time. And mm. he really, for some reason, I guess, cause it's new and it's all the rage. He's dying to watch Picard season three. And I'm like, you, you can't, you can't, no. you can't do that. So no. I gave him an abbreviated list of episodes that you like, okay, well, at least you absolutely must watch these TNG episodes yeah. And that was definitely on it because you need that one to know. You need to know Jean-Luc Picard at a certain depth. Oh, yeah. It's it's so funny to. And again, I recently went back and watched, I, you know, as we were, I think it was as we were gearing up for, I think it was gearing up for season one of Picard. I went back and just, I found, I found a list online. I think it might've even been Star Trek.com where they were like, Hey, here's the the Picard episodes to watch. And uh, one of them, of course, was Encounter at Farpoint. How can you not start with the first, you know, with the first thing? And, you know, so I turned on uh, Encounter at Farpoint. I was like, oh, Picard was kind of a jerk at the beginning of all of this. And kids. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't like kids. He kind of, he's kind of, he's kind of a jerk to Riker and the whole thing. And, but I was just like, okay, well, but again, like as we get in, you've realized, oh, this isn't his first rodeo. He spent like 20 years on the stargazer, lost his best friend who was married yeah. to the woman he loved. Like, oh, was like, oh, there, oh, there's a reason for all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, let's, so let's And it's be- easy to be a jerk to Riker before he had a beard. Yeah, Sorry. that's that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, as someone who used to work in law enforcement and was not allowed to have this glorious beard. <laughs> I got treated, I got treated like I looked and I looked like a kid and people were just, you're not about to tell me what to do. Get out of here. I'm about to surprise the heck out of you, but I used to be a police cadet. Get out of town. Really? Oh, that's fun. Where, uh, uh, okay. Just really briefly. And then we get back into Star Trek. Like, give me, give me the bullet points. Like how did this happen? How long, how, how long was it? Like, 
I was in my early 20s. I was drinking a lot. Life wasn't going well. I wanted, uh, I just wanted things to change. I had a quarter life crisis and uh, I, I tell a joke, uh, which is, you know, I, I quit my job and I have a liberal arts degree. So it was a really good bartending job. Um, <laughs> nice. And it was, it was a very good, very lucrative bartending job. And I just left and went and joined the police academy and full time, six months, graduated um ended up not becoming not becoming a cop um weird time in life but yeah uh, yeah, yeah got, got my full law enforcement education at least the academy part <laughs> hey it's i i was at a weird place in my life where it was just you know certain things were starting to happen and you know something was going to break and i was just like okay i you know i'm i i i got to you know, for lack of a better term, I got to sack up. Like, let's, let's go ahead and let's, let's make a, let's make a big decision here. And yeah. Yeah. And in one day I went to two different places. One was the local uh, county jail and filled out, filled out an application. And on my way home, I stopped at the army recruiter and started that paperwork as well. And the jail called me back first and and I was in law enforcement for the better part of a decade. And it was, yeah, it was, um, oh, I, it's, it's a chapter that I'm glad is behind me. Uh, I did learn a lot and some of those skills are applicable to like normal adult humans. Like, Hey, write things down when they happen. So that if, <laughs> so that if something shows up, you can go, Oh yeah, at this time at this day, da, 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 da. so yep. yeah, <laughs> attention to detail. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, so anyways, yourself to a higher standard thing that a lot of people forget, but Right, right. So let's jump back into uh, New Trek. You mentioned, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Discovery. What are your overall thoughts on the rest of New Trek? Just because they all watch so differently. They're all, I mean, they're all, it, it's clear that New Trek is very much opened the uh, the spectrum of the target audience. Like, Discovery is for those sort of brand new, super gung-ho. Maybe they watch the J.J. Abrams films and they want more. Um, You know, Picard is clearly for those nostalgic folks who wants to see, you know, their favorite characters take one last ride. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you want to... Lower Decks is clearly for the... Easter eggs. (laughs) Yeah, Easter eggs. It's for the hardcore fans. I've always compared Lower Decks to the Lego Batman movie of just like, Go try to find all the Easter eggs. You won't. There's so many of them. Yeah. Um, You know, prodigies, you know, for, uh, I say it's for kids, but it's kind of, it's for brand new people. It's like, if you've never watched Star Trek, Star Trek before, check this out because you're going to see it through some fresh eyes and, uh, and then strange new worlds, strange new worlds is kind of like, if, if we didn't tick your box, this one's about to, because it does. It get, it hits every it hits everything. It's it's oh, so, yeah. it's so good. It's be- I've always said like it's better than it has any reason to be. Like it shouldn't be this good. <laughs> you know, I I see strange new worlds as kind of okay. I'm, I'll just tell you this real quick. I, yeah. I I one thing about living in New York City that's so awesome is I get to go to all these Star Trek screenings <laughs> and. Uh-huh. So uh, one of the one of the the handful of that I've gotten to gone, gone to that I've gone to recently was um uh it was the first two episodes of Strange New Worlds I got to see a week before they aired uh, of season two yeah and yeah. 
I broke down in tears on the R train on my way home because Gene Roddenberry and Majel Barrett were not alive to see Ad Astra Peraspera because that was her character. Yeah. It got kicked off in 1964 when Gene Roddenberry wrote the original pilot with Pike and and the and female number one played by his later wife, Majel Barrett. Like that got rejected by the network because they said it is not going to be believable to audiences that a female would be that high ranking of an officer. You know, it's fine. You know, you have lieutenant, yeoman, whatever. But there's no way that the second in command would be a woman. So you can either get rid of the alien or the woman, or I think was what I read that they said to Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> and so he kept Spock and recast uh, her as Nurse Chapel. And number one, never saw the light of day again until strange new worlds and then yeah. to have this episode address what happened to her character for being yeah. a woman all those years ago yeah all these years later and i i i think strange new worlds is if gene roddenberry had the technology and the sort of social freedom uh for lack of a better phrase i, I that's what he would have Gene Roddenberry would be so freaking happy with it. <laughs> yeah. I th I think so too. You know, looking at the way I, I pointed it out recently, um, talking about Star Trek being a, a mirror, a, a cautionary tale uh, for our society. And that, mm -hmm. that episode, I think it was season or it was season one, but it was either episode like two or three Pike beams down into the middle of this political debate and just like, hi, <laughs> uh, yeah. hey, go, go ahead and load the video package. And like the footage in that package is from the news very, very recently. And it's, it's, yeah. and you, that was I, episode one. Yeah. Yeah. So we we're all yeah. just kind of like, oh yeah, we, for, oh yeah. We kind of set all that aside to watch Star Trek. We forgot Star Trek talks about that sort of thing. Like it was like, oh. That episode is, is just some of the Star Trekiest Star Trek ever. Yeah. Just and the, oh, so good. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Oh, so, so let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper. Here we are. We are, we are at the tail end of season two of discovery we, we we went through the very dark season one where it's just mm -hmm. like hey mutiny death and that's not enough all right mirror universe where they definitely mutiny death a lot all the Klingons. <laughs> yeah now we're in season two there's a big shift pike comes along hey i'm not lorca now we're kind of it's we're we're unraveling this scientific biological technological time spanning mystery of the red angel yeah uh, what was it like kind of diving back into this like how did did uh did anything unlock in the head of like oh i didn't remember that or oh this is fun I, it's or you know I, I gosh i forgot all about this i find that in myself a lot i've taken a lot of shots to the head but <laughs> <laughs> i mean what the one thing that I love about 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 learning what we learn about the red angel mm. is it's like in, initially present. I mean, just the word angel, you know, is this very sort of spiritual concept that's defined differently for everybody. And then and mm -hmm. and they sort of introduce it with this like almost spiritual enigma around it. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, just science, just science. 
Yeah. Yep. Especially with especially with that second episode. I think it's the second episode or it's either second or third of of season two, New Eden, where it's the where yeah. they've, they've combined all the religions and yeah. this whole thing centered around the red angel that rescued them and took them to a different planet. Like there's so much going on there. And, you know, Star Trek has never shied away from talking about religion. But it's always been very, I mean, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that Gene Roddenberry was an atheist. There's a great book out there called The Gospel According to Star Trek, and it's written by um, uh, Kevin C. Neese. He's a friend of the show. He's come on. We've talked at length about all of this stuff because I was worried his book was going to be very preachy, and it's not. He's he, oh. he, he like he's a he's a studious, a very studious scholar. He went and analyzed those, all of those original interviews with Roddenberry. Roddenberry wasn't an atheist. He was against charlatans. He was against the people who, who preach whatever to whatever deity while they're collecting handfuls of money. And, you know, that sort of thing. The tele-evangelist, if you will. Yeah. Um, that's what he was against. He wasn't against people having faith or believing in anything. But he was also very much about being, it's the human experience and what that is to be human and be humane to other humans. You know, we started this conversation talking about Star Trek reminds people to, hey, be nice to each other. <laughs> right? Be good people. Like, hey, learn science, learn math, understand your world and the people in that world. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with that and if you have faith that can go with it too but it's you know it's the idea of we are human so let's understand what it is to be human and be humane to others um do you have any thoughts about any of that uh you know you you started with talking about the nature of the red angel evoking some very distinct uh imagery any any further thoughts about that sort of thing? I always find that really fascinating. So one thing that one of the first things I thought of as as you were talking uh, that sort of a a parallel was a TNG episode. Who watches the Watchers? Yes. Which there, this is a society that has, you know, culturally evolved past religion, um, and uh, they suddenly suddenly are confronted with something they don't understand. Uh, so they, th- the first instinct is this is to be worshiped. Mm. Um, so they latch on to Picard as this God and it takes him all the convincing in the world to, uh, it, he has to I mean, really explain. Uh, and it's, it, it, the big, re- the reveal that this, this thing, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it can't be explained the red angel, the enterprise D in that episode, they don't understand. They don't understand a couple thousand years of technology that led up to, you know, warp travel. So it's like all of a sudden, Oh, look, here's warp travel. Well, it's that whole quote about that at some point technology becomes indistinguishable from magic. And that's the same with the red angel. It's, it's some of the most intense, uh, advanced technology that we've seen, even on Star Trek, the red angel suit. Yeah. yeah it has absolutely. like, it has infinite storage, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's essentially indistinguishable from magic. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it took up such a big chunk of Discovery's Discovery's computer system. It was taking it was taking some of the brightest minds in the universe a long time to go through it. But all of it fits nice and snug in this little angel suit. <laughs> this is yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. And we've got so much, uh, there's so much going on sort of underneath the general plot. You know, here in this story, we've got Spock and Burnham trying to very slowly sort of reconcile their relationship. And, you know, Spock struggling to understand why all of these things. And Burnham struggling to control uh, the things that are outside of her reach either physically yeah. mentally spiritually or otherwise um and then we, and then we've also got these you know these added layers of section 31 trying to do their thing and pike just trying to okay i'm not gonna focus on my future and knowing that i'm gonna die for a while so that i can do this thing uh you know there's a lot going on with uh everything here but before we get too much further into this episode let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our patreon supporters rev j jerry antimano cosmic crit kitty b and david willett spoiler alert spoiler alert spoiler alert people think time is precious but it's not time is savage it always wins. What we do now, in this moment, has the power to determine the future. We haven't come this far to lose everything now. Burn to discovery. Blow this place to hell. Burnham awakens in sickbay, thinking she'd hallucinated seeing her mom on Esau 4. They tell her that not only is it her mom, but they've got her mission logs too. On the Section 31 ship, Control tells Leland its evil plan as holograms of the main cast. Then it injects him with nanotech, which really hurts a lot. And on that note, we cue the music. Discovery, Burnham reviews her mom's mission logs, which show her escaping Ford 950 years in the future when all life in the galaxy has been wiped out by control. On the bridge, Tilly reports physics was slowly catching up to them and would soon snap Burnham's mom back to the future. On Leland's ship, Control, in possession of Leland's body, tells Giorgio and Tyler enough to throw them off the scent while still trying to get them to bring the sphere data on board, but Giorgio is suspicious. On Discovery, Burnham continues to review her mom's logs, which say preventing control from getting the sphere's data has been impossible. Spock enters and reports that Burnham's mom had regained consciousness. As they enter the bridge, Culber reports from the planet that Burnham's mom wanted to talk to the captain, and only the captain. In the ready room, Burnham vents her outrage to Pike, who orders her to stay aboard and watch from the feed. Pike beams down and has a one-on-one -on -one with Burnham's wet blanket of a mom. Spock reviews Burnham's mom's mission logs, 
in which she explains his dyslexia allowed him to understand the visions. Burnham tells Spock she needed to see her mom. Spock suggests they go to Pike together. From Leland's ship, Control, as Leland, prods Tyler to get the job done. Heading to the transporter room, Pike concedes that with as little time as they had remaining, letting Burnham try to reach her mother was the best course of action. Spock quotes Hamlet, and Burnham beams down. Burnham's mom has gone from a wet blanket to a cold shoulder. Stamets estimates 43 minutes before containment field failure. Spock understands Burnham's mom's been trying to find a way to destroy the sphere data. Perhaps there's a reason she failed thus far, and perhaps time itself would provide the answer. Stamets suggests putting the sphere archive into the suit and sending it into... The future! Beyond Burnham's mom's anchor point, and let the micro wormhole take it away forever. Leland, learning of the plan from Tyler, emphasizes to Giorgio they couldn't let that happen. In the Daedalus facility, Burnham's mom and Giorgio have a one-on-one. Giorgio begins secretly transmitting the data to Leland's ship. Leland tells Tyler to monitor the transmission. Burnham's mom tells Giorgio that the AI considered her an unacceptable risk to the larger mission. The exact same words Leland spoke to Giorgio earlier. Burnham and Stamets beam in and tell her they'd modified the transporter to beam her permanently into the present and send the suit ahead. Burnham's mom refuses, saying if the plan fails, control wins, and no one would be able to stop it. Giorgio contacts Tyler and relays her suspicions regarding Leland. Giorgio deactivates the amplifier, stopping the transmission. Tyler enters Leland's ready room, seeing Control reshape Leland's face. Horrified, Tyler reaches for a phaser. Control is faster and stronger, throwing him through a glass panel, then using a large shard of it to stab him. You won't win, Tyler warns. Control remarks that Leland said the same thing. Tyler warns Discovery. In the facility below... A blast ricochets off the containment field and knocks Burnham to the ground. Burnham's mom tells them the only way forward now was to destroy the containment field. Without the suit, Control couldn't get the data. But if they do that, Burnham's mom would be yanked back without the suit. But at least this way, she'd have a chance. Burnham, Stamets, and Nan fire on the power disks, and the containment field fails. Burnham contacts Discovery and tells them to beam them up, then blow this place to hell. Owosakun reports she detects another transporter signal from the facility to the Section 31 ship. Control has escaped. And an escape pod. One life sign. Tyler. In her quarters, Burnham watches one of her mother's mission logs, where she promises that she'll come back for her once the time storm passed. At that moment, Spock enters and sets up the 3D chessboard and remarks that the board was Michael's. I don't care! So, yeah, we see that, uh, you know, with with everything going on, this is some heavy stuff. The stakes, the stakes are the highest. Like, and it's not, a lot of times it's like, oh, everyone on the ship might die or everyone on this planet might die or every, everyone on Earth might die. Like, no, it's all life. <laughs> life in the universe yeah 
um let's 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 take this one chunk at a time this plot any 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 thoughts going into this particular episode perpetual infinity of you know what's what is happening what's going on the stakes here uh the players involved a- any any cursory thoughts uh now that we're in spoiler territory now that we're in spoiler territory well one of the one of the the big things is and and you may have to remind me here when when pike sees his future in the time crystal that's is that just before this episode or is that uh, just I that's think, right around the, this time right yeah we're getting closer to this yeah i think uh i think it's coming up i think it's coming up it's coming up so so you know it's 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 interesting to see him uh and and how he functions before and after that uh and and this is is one of those things that I, I personally cannot help wondering how Pike would have acted differently if he knew. And it, it's just I I don't mean to go off topic, but I imagine it must be just such a challenge as an actor because you hear so much of uh, not maybe not so much, but in certain mysteries, actors will be given a script and like not told if their character is going to live or die and purposely not told, you know, or if their character is the one who did it, you know, so that it right. doesn't affect how they act. But I don't, I, 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 I don't know. I forget how old Anson Mount is, but I, he was not watching Star Trek when the Menagerie aired, I guess. Right, but, right. <laughs> so, but probably for, you know, his entire life, he knew what happened to this character long before he played this character yeah. and to pull that off. Amazing. But um, yeah, we're seeing some really fantastic. It's no, nobody's phoning anything in like performance wise. Everybody is top of their game, you know, I, yeah. as much. And as much as I love Anson mountain, I do. I love Anson mountain. I, you know, based off of his opening intro, you know, the, you know, space, the final frontier based off yeah. of that, I'd listen to the man read a phone book like the he's 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 got right? it he's got it down. But uh, yeah, as, and as much as I love Anson Mount, um, Jason Isaacs last season, like there has been oh. no sh- there has been no shortage of amazing. act. Oh, yeah. Uh, recently, Academy Award winning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Michelle Yeoh as Philip yeah. Giorgio, like oh. kills it every scene she's in. It, oh yeah just oh she's amazing and like again tony award-winning uh anthony rap like it's you yeah know, all of these people are amazing actors and they are doug jones doug jones who's buried wilson under cruz wilson cruz it, the list goes on and on there's no nobody's phoning anything in all these all of these folks are at the top of their game and I I don't understand. Have you heard a lot of the folks who are just like, uh, yeah, Discovery's not for me. I'm like, do you not do you not like fun? Do you not like good acting? Do you <laughs> what what awesome thing don't you like? <laughs> I, I I I mean, so sometimes sometimes Discovery has like some some really intense action sequences um, that I guess are so much so much of star trek is and this is one thing i love about it and this doesn't make me like discovery any less but it's just just something i've noticed is that you know discovery was like the first new star trek series where they had a lot of like visual effects technology available that they didn't in in it for any previous series oh yeah so like if you look at even like say the first episode of discovery 
you're just like, holy sh**. This is what Star Trek looks like with some some production value. Yeah. Um, but they they do that and still manage to have the 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 plot line quality and the the intense dialogue. This episode in particularly in particular it has particularly intense dialogue. Oh yeah. Uh, conversations you have to listen to a few times. Like <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. There's there's so much going on with uh with all of this. I uh yeah, let's so looking at the nature of some of these things one of the things that uh because i mean i had watched it initially and i watched it in my own personal rewatch and then i watched it again today as you know prepping for the episode uh but one of the things that jumped out at me was you know knowing that i was going to talk to you knowing that we're comedians and they focus on this element uh not only in this episode but a few episodes ago spock's dyslexia and how that actually kind of gave him, you know, what he saw as a human failing uh, actually turned out to be a strength. And I was wondering if you felt that in any particular way, knowing like we just talked about with stand-up comedy, there's a particular there's a particular damage that makes people really, really good at something else you know uh, I'm I'm, I'm trying to be really just I'm trying to be really careful about how I choose my words here but it's you know getting on stage takes a certain thing that a lot of people don't have that other people might see as a failing but in this particular area it's a strength have you seen that in yourself and working in comedy oh I mean yeah every every day every day (laughs) Mm. um it's it, in fact, some of the some of the times I find that I am at my best as a performer are when I'm falling victim to one of my human failings. I'm I'm angry. My feelings are hurt at something that I shouldn't let bother me, or um, you know, just something has royally ticked me off that day. I, I, and Spock, dyslexia there's there's the dyslexia but it's it's sort of just representative of the human side in general um i'm trying to think of a a parallel like it's almost to me like so i i'm jewish and um i i know people who you know are maybe this is probably a bad example but like let's say someone someone was half jewish and they wanted to hide that side of themselves for whatever reason. Like mm. uh, there's all these anti-Semites in the world and whatever. Um, or for some reason, it, it, you know, so it's it's the kind of thing that, you know, Spock being ashamed of his being half human and half Vulcan. He's He's got the Vulcan side that he's proud of. Yeah. And then he's got the human side that's so counter to the Vulcan side um, that that he sees it as a failing rather than as balance. So I think the real life parallel that I was trying to draw is probably not maybe super relevant. Mm. Uh, now that I talked, now that I've talked it out, it's felt more relevant in my head, but uh, <clears throat> Spock's balance becomes a strength without him even, even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. He, compared to other Vulcans, he's able to work with humans, which is something we see uh, like to Paul, for example, initially struggling with more than Spock did. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, looking back at my own childhood, again, you know, a lot of this kind of stemming from Spock interacting with the Red Angel when he was a very young child, I think back to I was never diagnosed as di- uh, as dyslexic or anything like that um, or having any sort of uh, disorders, but I, I did struggle in school and everything like that, but I wasn't really, the things that I wanted to read were not what my very conservative, very strict um, religious schooling <laughs> was going to let me read. I wanted to read Batman comics. I wanted to read, you know, other things and you know my reading comprehension and skill level suffer- suffered because of that because it was just it was just agony trying to get through the curriculum and i look back now yeah. you know as i'm knocking on the door of 40 and looking at oh if they'd have recognized my love of storytelling and my desire to learn about xyz comedy you know script writing uh you know uh, acting and you know script you know all all of those types of uh endeavors lit- uh you know literature and things of that sort and had been if i had been encouraged in that sort of thing it's more of a thought it's more of a thought exercise of like oh how would my life have been different you know how you know how what would have the path the path not taken you know and it's yeah you could it's it's yeah. a it's kind of a dangerous path to take because then you end up you know i've at times been filled with you know resentment for um you know the the teachers who didn't recognize it my parents who didn't encourage it or, yeah you, you know all of these things yeah. I'm like no no but you're here now and you know being one of you know at, at our open mics here I'm one of the older guys I'm one of the old guys but part of what I bring is I have the perspective of having been married for over a decade. I have the perspective of having worked in law enforcement. I have the perspective of paying a mortgage and 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 other things. You know, I'm I'm past the I'm past the high school like college days. Like I'm I'm more I'm further along in my life. So I bring that perspective to my performance. Yeah. And you know, for the guy, oh, well, I just don't know. I just don't know what to talk about. Go to a museum, man. Like, get out of the house. Like, read read a book. <laughs> I don't know. Like, start yeah. start experiencing life, <laughs> and you yeah. might find it. You have something to say about it. Remember, um, literally anything that's happened to you, and yeah, yeah, and then articulate it. Like, <laughs> it yeah. starts there. <laughs> Think back to high school about a time when you said this will be funny in ten years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but it is there's a lot of resentment there because yeah. I, you know, I I do I do a storytelling bit on stage where I talk about something that happened to me in high school. That and and let's be real. When you say this will be funny in ten years, you kind of already know it's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I I it, and it's heal it's healing though when to talk about that on stage and and to know that probably some of the same people who bullied me for what I'm talking about are now paying money to hear me talk about it. And that's hilarious to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, a little bit of, it's, it's very therapeutic. A lot of, you know, comedians who, who may or may not be in therapy, see the, see the performance on stage as a vein of that therapy of, you know, being able to take, that experience traumatic or odd or awkward or whatever and being able to craft it being being able to analyze it like comedians do 
and craft it into something that is relatable that reaches someone else on a particular level and elicits laughter like that the ability to do that i think is incredible well first of all it's incredibly healthy uh but secondly i I feel like it's one of the greatest superpowers almost in the world being able to get laughter out of people i think like I, there was a, gosh, this is a a really weird deep cut, but there is an episode of MacGyver from way back when where- I uh, love that show. I did too. It was so great. But Mac is dealing with uh, somebody who, you know, kind of works in comedy and, you know, he's talking about, oh, are they going to think it's funny? And da, 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 da. he's like, hey, look, anybody can make you think. It takes a genius to make somebody laugh. And that has stuck with me <laughs> for a long, long time. Uh, you I know, love that. And that- it may not be like the level of intelligence that gets you, you know, uh, a, a framed piece of paper with your name in a script font or something like that. But uh, there is a level of of em- empathic intelligence and and awareness yeah. of the world around you and being able to relate, being able to uh, uh, being able to articulate better than I am now, being able to articulate your thoughts and feelings to someone else on a level that connects with them. And if you're able to do that one-on-one, that's great. If you're able to do that in a room full of people, now you're a comedian. If that room gets much bigger, now you're a politician. <laughs> like ah. it's, it's a little weird that way, but you know, <laughs> there, there there's all different kinds of levels and stuff like that. Hell, I think Chris Rock was talking uh, to Jerry Seinfeld in comedians and cars getting coffee of like, we shouldn't be able to talk to rooms full of people. That's a weird thing. That's a really <laughs> weird thing that, that we do. <laughs> Thank God. I love it though. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there's nothing like it. There really is nothing like it. Um, it's so, a different let, kind of intelligence. Yeah, it is. It is a very different kind of intelligence. Let's, let's jump back in here. What's, is there anything else about this episode specifically uh, that sticks out to you in terms of, you know, the A plot, the B plot? You know, we've got the, you know, we've got the main narrative, we've got the story and these characters all developing in a particular direction. Anything else uh, that stuck out to you before we move on? Well, the biggest thing that sticks out to me about this episode in general is sort of the the juxtaposition between the A plot and the B plot, because you've got all sentient life in the universe on the line, like yep. you've, you've literally got a freaking for all intents and purposes, existence yeah. is on the line. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got like Michael dealing with orphan issues. Uh-huh. So all sentient life in the universe, mommy issues. And, and both of them are presented with equal intensity. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's it. it it's such an interesting thing. I uh, I don't know that I've talked about it a lot here on the show. Uh, I lost my mom when she when I was um, when I was nineteen. Uh, she she got sick. She had this uh, condition called scleroderma, which the word itself means hardening of the tissue. Uh, you see it manifest in hands and stuff like that. Mom had it in her lungs, so eventually her lungs just stopped working. And it it happened very, very quick. And that was incredibly devastating for me because I, I didn't get to say goodbye um, and all of that stuff. So when I so when I see when I see Burnham waking up from the trauma of quite literally dying <laughs> to bring her mother yeah. to to this place and then her thinking it was a 
that she hallucinated it that it was oh that's that's not real they're like no your mom's here <laughs> no she she died she died that's that's not died. that didn't happen yeah. she she's died in that moment i'm like oh i i i put myself in her in her in her in her start fleet in her starfleet boots like yeah how, how would i react to being like oh yeah your mom's in the other room <laughs> what for real how yeah. would you I, I, like i'm i'm serious i'm curious like that must have hit you differently than anyone there i mean i've i've talked with a few folks about supernatural experiences you know spirits the afterlife and all that stuff and i do not claim to be an expert or anything like that all i can tell you is that after my mom passed away i saw her three times four times and it was sort of this experience where i'm either asleep and have an out-of-body experience or I'm, you know, in my room, headphones on, eyes closed, sort of listening to music, and I feel a presence sort of hug me the way I used to hug her. <laughs> oh. um, different, different things like that. There's a there's a picture of my mom, very, uh, very early 1960s, very Mad Men era, black dress big blonde beehive the whole thing and and she looks great she looks like a million bucks um needless to say mom didn't look that way at the end of her life (laughs) but i remember um i remember having this you know that that sweet spot between asleep and awake and she walked by my bedroom door in the black dress with the big blonde beehive and she there was a sense i got a sense that she knew i was still struggling with her passing and she stopped and just did this kind of she, she didn't like really pose but it was just kind of like look at me i'm i'm fine it's going to be okay <laughs> yeah and it was just there there's those couple of instances i think i think there were four in total um but through those four instances just kind of like it's going to be okay like this is the, you know, the way of life. Um, uh, remember them, um, you know, mourn them for a time and, and we, and we move on, we continue to live and all of these things, yeah. but, you know, I can't say that I, you know, don't regret again, just like Burnham, the things that are outside of my control. Yeah. I would, yeah. Have, I would have loved for her to have met my wife. I would have loved for her to see me get sworn in as a police officer. You know, I would have loved to, you know, all of these, all of these things, you know, um, and yeah, it was, you know, all of those missed opportunities and just kind of, I think what that does in my own head, and then I'll let you talk, I swear. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what it does for me in my own head is just kind of like, Hey, they're going to be gone someday. Make sure you make the most of what this is, what's going on now. And it's not necessarily any one particular thing. And I'm not, and I'm not saying like, you know, folks that are toxic in your life. Well, okay. You know, let's leave the toxicity out, but you know, for those folks that are in your life, make sure you know that they're appreciated and that you love them and that you care about them because someday they will be gone. And that's kind of how I look at this situation with, Michael getting the chance to be reunited with her mom and, 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 you know, being able to maybe live a little vicariously through that. I I don't know any, any thoughts about any of this. This is some getting into heavy territory here. It's a heavy episode. Yeah. Yeah. 
really heavy episode. I mean, evidence of how heavy it is, is that all sentient life in the universe is online and on the line. And, and I'm sure we're not the only ones who, who mentally and emotionally go to the other place because it is relatable. Well, I was about to say (laughs) we've never faced a situation where all sentient life in the universe was on the line. But uh, I think about the state of this planet right now and, um, I'm not so sure about that, but uh, might be closer than we think. <laughs> than we think, and, <laughs> and yet the you know these family relationship issues are especially difficult ones are are so so relatable to people yeah. that yeah. you can put that in there with this massively heavy larger plot line and still have your audience latch on to that emotionally. And for me, watching. Watching the scene where Michael finally like really talks to her mother and just doesn't get what she wants mm. out of the conversation. Yeah. Is, is really heartbreaking for me to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and again, looking at, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, I mentioned before about, you know, I've had a lot of um, I've had a lot of veterans uh, come on and uh, having worked in law enforcement and, and you know, worked around, uh, you know, different officers and different parts of their career and things of that nature, there is a sense of, there is something that the job does to you, you know, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, you can learn a lot of great skills and all that stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, great, you know, things to take away from it at a cost. And that cost is, you know, uh, to a degree, your 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 faith, your hope you know, uh, being able to look on the bright side of a lot of situations. And I think that's where, I think that's where Burnham's mom is coming from of like, I've seen you die a hundred times. I'll see you die a hundred more. Like I think of my father, who's a Vietnam veteran, you know, I've gotten him to tell me a few stories about his time in the service and who some of them are not safe for work like <laughs> like there's oh. he witnessed some horrible horrible things over there yeah um, and yeah it's just whew, couple that with some with some religious uh with some uh you know religious uh oppression <laughs> when you come home it makes for a wonder mwah, wonderful a wonderful uh comedian cocktail <laughs> oh. um well anyways uh Thank you so much for, uh, you know, allowing me to kind of, you know, dive a little bit deeper than I normally do with these episodes, Danny. This is this has been a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, as we've been talking, we've, we've been talking a lot about these uh, these characters and we've talked a little bit about the actors and all the people involved. But when you look at something like this and all the people that are involved in bringing something like this to the screen, you always have to ask, as we do every week, lovingly, who do we blame? So this episode was written by Alan uh, McElroy, uh, whose last work on the series was Discovery Season 2, Episode 4, and Obal for Charon, uh, which we discussed with the director of Trekfest in Riverside, Iowa, Travis Riggin, back on Episode 106. And it was also uh, written by Brandon Schultz, uh, whose last work was on Short Treks Season 2, Episode 5, The Girl Who Made the Stars, which we discussed with the folks from Shuttlepod yes. Show back on uh, Episode 87. That's a wonderful... Yeah. I, I absolutely adore the Short Treks. We didn't mention Me those. Too. Uh, yeah, I, and it absolutely broke my heart that 
that there aren't more of them. I, you know, there was a, uh, you know, you think of those anthology type series like Twilight Zone or, uh, you know, other things, uh, Masters of Horror and stuff like that, where they give, you know, a writer and a director, hey, look, you've got, you know, X number of minutes on screen. What do you got? And especially when it was Masters of Horror, it's just kind of like, okay, we're on, we're on Showtime. So you've got, here's your budget. You've got 55 minutes. Have fun. <laughs> like no MPAA. <laughs> and you saw some really messed up stuff come out of it. It was, there was a lot of really good stuff, but it was just kind of like, oh, can you imagine if somebody went to Guillermo del Toro and was like, hey, what could you do with 55 minutes in the Star Trek universe? Like, I would love to see that. Oh, amazing. Oh. Trex is so great with the, just for supplementing the story that one of my favorite episodes of short tracks is when Spock and Una get stuck in and out the turbo lift and love it and sing. I am the very model of modern major general and flash forward uh, years to add Astra Perispera and which darn it that that's the state motto of Kentucky because it was going to be so many Trekkies next tattoo until they realized that. (laughs) Do the stars through hardship? Come on. All comedians should, you know, anyway. Um, but they actually sp- had Spock call back to that episode of Short Treks yes. in Una's trial. Um, she, she, Spock in, on the witness stand is asked, you know, was Lieutenant Commander Chin Riley hiding anything? And he said, yes, yes. an affinity for Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. <laughs> I even said it as I was sitting there and watching it with my wife, because we were both just glued to the screen. And that question came up. And before he said, I was like, her love of musicals. And my wife looked at me. And then he said that I was like, told you. <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a great moment, too, because, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. Leonard Nimoy, uh, you know, a, an iconic performance as as Spock for years. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, man, Ethan Peck is knocking it out of the park. He's done such a great job. Unbelievable job. I have always thought it must be the hardest thing in the world to play a Vulcan and not just come across as a jerk, basically. (laughs) A lot of Vulcan characters just, you know, the actor is, is trying to just, you know, have gone through Polinar and not have emotions, right? But sometimes you just sound like a jerk. Um, And I think Ethan Peck and Leonard Nimoy are both particularly good at playing that Vulcan accurately and Mm. still being kind of lovable. Oh, yeah. Not to shortchange Zachary Quinto either. Like he did a great job, too, for for what he was, you know, for his involvement. And it was only it was very short. But like he did a great job, too, of like, yeah. There, it, it's a tough. challenge it's, for an actor yeah so i remember it's that first it's that first movie where he and kirk are on the bridge back and forth that and it's and it's really and finally like security take him out and they start escorting him and of course kirk starts fighting them off and you see him drop that nerve pinch on him drops him and he's got he's able to deliver the line with the right amount of coldness but also a level of gotcha, bitch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes. Get him off my shit. Yes. Like, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> let, let that human emotion come through. 
Yes, yes. Oh, so uh, let's dive back in here. Uh, this episode was directed by Maha Vervio. I again, I think I said that when I initially mentioned her way back when. I'll say it again here. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not. Uh, but her last work on the series was Short Trek Season 1, Episode 1, Runaway. Another really fun episode. Tilly. It's a Tilly episode. Who doesn't love a Tilly episode? Uh, we discussed that on Episode 100 with, uh, I don't know, some idiot who thinks he knows everything. And then uh, our guest stars. We've got some returning guest stars. Very familiar faces at this point. Michelle Yeoh is George Joe, Ethan Peck is Spock. Alan Van Sprang is Leland slash Control. This is actually where I really get into the character of Leland Control. Because just so sinister. I love it. Love it. Oh, love sinister. It. Oh, yeah. And of course, Rachel Ann Cheryl is non. And then one more returning uh, guest star here is... Kenrick Green as Mike Burnham, uh, Michael Burnham's dad, uh, who's last, we saw him last in Short Trek season two, episode five, The Girl Who Made the Stars. And then uh, we, this isn't the first time we're seeing her, but man, we get to see her just choose some scenery here. Sanja Son as Dr. Gabriel Burnham. Uh, mm. So just really briefly, she studied English at Brooklyn College, which led her to her first credit, which is actually her first two credits. Uh, she, uh, got spotted, uh, doing slam poetry in New York. So she was able to, she got brought on to this film to act in it. She ended up writing a lot of the movie, if not the entire thing, uh, the 1998 slam, uh, she played Lauren Bell. Now that movie actually went on to get, uh, seven different nominations. And from those nominations came four wins, including a golden camera at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, the Breakthrough Award for Son and her co-star Saul Williams, the Audience Choice Award from the St. Louis International Film Festival, the Bronze Horse from Stockholm Film Festival, and the Grand Jury Prize from Sundance. So, it's a decent movie <laughs> if you're looking for something this weekend. Uh, she made appearances in Shaft in 2000 alongside Samuel L. Jackson and Christian Bale and the entirely improvised Perfume from 2001 alongside Star Trek alum Paul Sorvino. Uh, she was in all 60 episodes of The Wire from 2002 to 2008 as Detective Kima Greggs. Uh, she, was, she was also in five episodes of Cold Case, 29 episodes of Body of Proof, and she continued to work in film and television uh, through the 20-teens, including three episodes of Marvel's Luke Cage in 2016 as Captain Bethany Audrey. And as I mentioned, she popped in there at the end of last week's episode. So this is her second appearance in the franchise, but not her last. We will see her again. Uh, so, Danny. As we do each week, we ask the question, is this essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down and watching this particular episode, Perpetual Infinity, and uh, they they come to this episode, uh, Perpetual Infinity, is this one that they must see or is this an episode that they can skip? So one thing about Discovery versus, say, like, TNG or Strange New Worlds, it's, it's, it's serialized. Each episode is not... Um, is not self-contained. Like, so for example, I'm trying to get my dad into watching uh, TNG. I can give him, I can say, okay, watch, um, watch the outcast. 
watch Measure of a Man, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you're going to watch Discovery, you, you sort of just have to watch Discovery. Yeah. And <laughs> when you consider the larger Star Trek plot line mm. and sort of how important Captain Pike is to that. Oh, yeah. And and this episode has a place in the in the story in the story that is Pike ultimately seeing his just mortifying future yeah this episode has a place in that so therefore it has a place in in the timeline of the other of another new trek series Mm -hmm. uh and and just in the larger universe overall um and not to mention it's it's place in the progression of the plot of discovery itself even though that sort of eventually kind of forks off into its own timeline far off in the future but uh so I would say like, I would say yes, because yeah. it's, it just, it, it's not its own self-contained episode that has some beautiful moral about the principles of the United Federation of Planets, mm-hmm. but there's plenty of those, oh, which yeah. is great. But, but this is, this is, a, there's, there's a lot in this episode. And if you're looking at Star Trek as a whole, as a story, then you need to watch this episode for a large for a chunk of story. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, aside from the serialized nature, which uh, again, it's, I've never uh, shied away from mentioning that I love that they took a chance and said, you know what, we've done episodic for a long, long time. Let's switch it up a bit. And I think it, you know, turned Star Trek for the first time in ever <laughs> uh, into a water cooler show where you had to you had to keep up yeah. you had to watch it now in addition to that if you're if you're really into the story of michael burnham which i mean she's the main protagonist of of discovery so yeah. that kind that kind of goes hand in hand but if you're following her and her family and and all of this stuff this is a this is clearly an essential viewing episode uh for me i love the you know dark espionage type things i'm a big section 31 fan so for the dealing with section 31 which there's a little moment between tyler and Giorgio of them sort of plotting over the com badge of you know trying to figure out what's going on with leland and oh, um, yeah I, that's a really it's a really fun moment between those actors I, I, well they're obviously not on the same set, but like, you know, uh, kudos to not only the actors, but the uh, the editors for making that just seamless and such a really fun moment. Uh, but anyways, yeah, if you're following the Section 31 stuff, I think it's important. Um, and yeah, Pike's story. I don't know that Pike's story really, t- it kind of, I feel like it kind of takes a backseat to uh, his overall arc in this particular episode. But oh, I mean, oh, yeah. But I mean, like, oh, God, just every every little turn he gets is like trading card worthy. It was just like, yep, that one. And uh, here comes another one. There it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- I think this is absolutely essential viewing. Well, Danny... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, let's let's Pleasure. jump right in here uh, to uh, parting thoughts. You know, uh, here we're going to start wrapping things up. But do you have any parting thoughts to leave about this particular episode, Discovery as a whole, Star Trek as a whole, um, your Star Trek in comedy 
uh, you know, life as it continues to roll on uh, your experience on this podcast. Any parting thoughts before we go? Oh my gosh. I feel like I want to like break down a, a, a list and give an abbreviated answer to every single thing you just mentioned. <laughs> well, this hey, has been I got the time. <laughs> Talking to you has been awesome at like any opportunity to just nerd out in extreme depth about about Star Trek is is treasured by me. Um, so this has been awesome. And thank you so, so much for having me on. Um, yeah, this this episode, this is this is this was a loaded episode. And I feel like we totally could have talked about it for another five hours. Oh, easily. Uh, yeah. But that's one thing that I love so much about Star Trek. Like my my husband and I have had six hour long conversations on how replicator technology would affect our current economy and how and why that can't happen until we either have World War III or evolve as a species. It, 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 but, you know, the six hour long intellectual version of what I just said. Um, and, and the fact that a show can do that is is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And 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 inspire humor. I, um, I'm trying to think if I have a Star Trek joke I could throw out that's not too dirty, but... <laughs> Most of the short ones are the dirty ones. I'm That's sorry. That's okay. We love you all the same. <laughs> hey, you know what? We'll save that for Patreon. We'll save that for the after show. Okay. <laughs> well, again, Danny, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for uh, for carving out the time. I know you're on a you're on a comedian schedule in New York, which is much different than you know the normies out there. <laughs> it's almost breakfast time already. I know at at almost four p.m. <laughs> <laughs> uh well again thank you so much and our best to you as you continue to work in that field well folks next time we will be joined by my good friend patrick cunningham to discuss discovery season two episode 12 through the valley of shadows which is available wherever you watch star trek we support the strike danny what do you have going on? Where can people see you uh, perform? Where can people support the things that you've got going on in the world? So I just uh, perform somewhere in New York City just about every night. Um, I, uh, I'm i often at uh, the Grizzly Pear Comedy Club, um, uh, and uh, I do perform at a lot of Star Trek conventions. I, the next one I have coming up is... Uh, I, I can't remember dates. Um, Trek Conderoga in Ticonderoga at the um, location of the Star Trek set recreations. Um, nice. And that is, I'm about to find out, that is August 18th through 20th that's happening. So uh, I'm going to be performing there, um, performing, I, I think, 25 minutes of uh, probably PG-13 rated Star Trek jokes. <laughs> um I uh, I recently performed at at Shoreleave Con uh, and uh, love doing that one every year. Um, but uh, yeah, if there's a Trek convention on the East Coast, um, keep your eyes open for um, for me or for uh, under or possibly under the heading of seriously nerdy comedy. Uh, my colleague Dave McOwen from DC and I perform at these together, usually cosplaying as Data and Seven of Nine. Uh, although my uh, my latest cosplay that I think I'm going to lean into is uh, just Orion pirate chick. I saw that the other day on your, uh, <laughs> on your Instagram. I was like, oh, uh, switching it up a bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, oh, and yeah, you follow me on Instagram and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you on the internet? 
so uh, definitely Instagram. Um, I'm always uh, posting uh, cosplay photos. And uh, when I remember to, my comedy show schedule, <laughs> which I obviously love everyone to see. Uh, and it's uh, at Danny Rydell Comedy, uh, D-A-N-I-R-I-E-D-E-L Comedy. Um, and yeah, I try to keep up with it. I, uh, I I struggle with social media, but I try. I really try. The, the very least, there's some pictures of me not wearing very much painted green from head to toe. <laughs> <laughs> and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you at 10 forward. on patreon and like rate review and share on all your favorite platforms feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computer resume podcasts at gmail.com or at computer resume on facebook twitter instagram and tiktok the computer resume podcast was created and produced by mr todd a davis our logo was designed by will martin and justin bishop the opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're gonna find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?